The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. In Acts chapter 13, just while you're finding your place, uh, if you're a visitor here and you're new, uh, welcome. We are so glad that you're here with us, and uh, we pray that God will bless you as you spend time with us. Uh, on the counter, on the way out the door, there is a little visitor's card there. Uh, gives us some details. If you're happy to share that, uh, it goes directly to me. It doesn't go to anybody else, and uh, you can get emails and updates on what's happening in our church. So if you're new and you'd like to fill one of those out, we would appreciate it. Let's read together Acts chapter 13, and I'm going to read from verse number 23. Now, if you look on your sheet there, the handout we gave you, uh, that will probably start on the back there in verse 16. So find your way down to verse number 23, and we're going to read that, 23 to verse 41, for our sermon text this morning. And Paul, as you know, he and Barnabas have traveled over the mountains, the Taurus Mountains, to Antioch or Pisidian Antioch, and they've gone into the synagogue on this Sabbath morning, and he has been invited to bring an exhortation, and he has given a brief history of God's dealings with Israel from verses 16 down to verse number 22, and we pick up in verse number 23. Of this man, that's David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Well, last Sunday morning, we looked at that history that Paul brought to the synagogue. And we saw there the history of God's dealings with Israel. And it's a history of grace. Whenever God deals with man, it is in grace. In grace, God chose the fathers and made them great despite their slavery in Egypt. In grace, God led them out of Egypt on Passover night, and then He put up with them in the wilderness uh, wanderings. In grace, God destroyed their enemies and distributed their inheritance in the land. In grace, God gave them judges as shepherds to care for them. And in grace, God raised up David as a king to replace Saul. And in amazing grace, abundant grace, God brought to Israel a Savior who is Jesus. And we saw last Sunday morning that God has not changed. He is the unchanging God. And just as He dealt with them in grace, in like manner, a lot of those things, He has dealt in grace with us, His people today. And during the same time that God saved Israel many times over, He saved them from the angel of death on Passover night. He saved them from the pursuing Pharaoh shortly after. He saved them from their own request for the mad king Saul. He saved them from a Midianite invasion through Gideon. And there's so many other stories in the Old Testament of God saving His people. But Paul's main point here to the Jews and to the Gentile God-fearers and to us today is that God has raised up for us the greatest Savior of all. The reality is that we all need to be saved. We all face the imminent reality of God's wrath against us for our sins. And we cannot save ourselves because death is the penalty for those sins. We've all been created with the ability to have fellowship with the living God, but we cannot because our sin and our spiritual deadness and darkness. We've all been created to know the heights of joy and peace with God, but we we cannot enjoy it because of our sin and our hostility against God. We've been created to represent God to, sorry, to represent and glorify and worship God as His living statues, reflecting back to Him His glory and reflecting that glory to others around us. But we cannot because of our sin-stained and sin-marred lives. We've been created for human society and fellowship and friendship, but we cannot enjoy that deeply and thoroughly because of our sin and our hostility against each other. The reality is, we all desperately need a Savior who will not only save us from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin, but we also need a Savior who can restore to us all that God designed us to know and experience as humans created in His own image and likeness. We need a Savior who can restore and reconcile us to God. And God has brought us the Savior that we all desperately need. So we must believe in Him for forgiveness of sins, for freedom from the law's demands, and to know the heights of human experience as God's image bears. You know what's interesting? You look at the world around us, 
and the glitz and the glamour of the entertainment industry and all the stuff that the world produces as a way to somehow enjoy the best life now. And the reality is, is sin has so deeply stained us that it's absolutely impossible. And all we're doing is self-medicating and trying to get to some better experience. And what we all desperately need is a Savior so that we can live in the heights of joy and peace and fellowship with each other as well as fellowship with God. And so God has sent a Savior. That was Paul's message to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch that Sabbath day. God has brought a Savior, the Lord Jesus. So I want us to consider some more of what Paul has said that day about the Savior that God brought. So first of all, our Savior is greater than men. In verses 21 to 23, this Savior is greater than every human king. Paul says in verse 21 that Israel asked for a king. Now, to understand the significance of that better, you have to remember that God told Samuel on that occasion when they asked for a king in 1 Samuel 8 and verse 7, he said, they've rejected me from being king over them. Israel had rejected God by asking for another king, a human king, a king like all the other nations, a king to lead them out and to bring them in. And so in sadness, God gave them Saul to be king over them. Saul, who would repeatedly disobey God and who in increasingly irrational conduct became the perfect example of a king that nobody wanted. And so God in grace removed Saul from being king over them. And in 1 Samuel 16, we see how God sends, uh, Jess, not Jess, he sends Samuel with his horn full of oil to anoint and raise up David to be Israel's great king. And God testified in Psalm 89 verse 20. And Paul says here that he was a son of Jesse of the tribe of Judah. He was a man whom God had found, meaning he was God's divine choice for them. He was a man after God's own heart, meaning he had a godly character, a godly love for God. He was one who will do all my will. He was an obedient king for much of his reign. He was a great king and a great man, but he was only a man who sadly failed. But God in rich grace, restored David, albeit with consequences. David was the king and the ancestor to an infinitely greater king. David was promised sons to sit on his throne forever. And from this great but very human king, God brought forth Jesus, the greatest king overall. You know what I love about the story of David? You see a great man who did great things, and he failed in a way that so many of us have failed. And we see that moment where God sends Nathan to confront the greatest, most powerful man in Nathan's whole context. And he gets to put his long finger in David's face and say, you're the man, David. You're the one who has sinned against God. And in that moment, God broke David's heart. And he confessed and admitted his sin. And God, in grace, forgave him. And although there are consequences, you see the grace of God in David's life. It reminds us that even though we blow it from time to time, and we all do, there is grace, rich, amazing grace in God to restore. 
So God brought forth Jesus, the greatest king of all, from David. Jesus is the Savior King with God's own heart because He is God Himself. Jesus is the Savior King who accomplished all God's will perfectly. That great cry at the end of His time on the cross, it's finished. And I am convinced that that sound just reverberated through all of existence as the Son of God declared unto the heights of heaven, I have done everything you've asked me to do right down to and including enduring separation from you on a cross. He accomplished all God's will perfectly. Jesus is the Savior King who never failed or sinned. Rather, He was made to be sin so that you and I could receive forgiveness. This Savior, Jesus, is greater than every human king. And then in verses 24 and 25, we see that He is a Savior greater than every human prophet. And lots of commentators have sort of said, I don't know why Paul kind of included this. The only thing they can say is, well, the people that he was speaking to had a knowledge of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was widely recognized to be one of the greatest and possibly the last of the prophets of God to the nation of Israel. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which is the last two verses in the last book of the Old Testament, Elijah, in quotation marks, is promised to return. And Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 14, said that John is the Elijah who was to come. And in Luke 3, we see John coming and preaching and baptizing for repentance of sin. And he came, preparing for Jesus' arrival, announcing like every forerunner does, that not just a king was coming, but the Lord himself is coming. You better prepare the way. And if I can take a time out for a second... As we look at what's going on in the world around us, it's no prizes for guessing that the time is growing short. Our Lord Jesus is coming and coming soon. Brother and sister, are you preparing for that return? Are you ready should Jesus come today? What would happen? Where would you stand? If I can just say it this way, where would you stand before God if He showed up before I finish this sermon? And trust me, I wish he would. I hope he does. Where would you stand, brother or sister? If your life was laid bare before the King of kings and Lord of lords who has omniscient knowledge and was standing here face to face with you, where would you be? Think about that. John was highly regarded by all the people of the Jews. Many had submitted to his baptism, confessing and repenting of their sin. But as John said, and Paul repeated, he was not even worthy to loosen Jesus' sandal straps. Jesus Christ was an infinitely greater than any and every man created by God because he is God himself and not created. God brought to Israel a Savior greater than all men. And brothers and sisters, being sinful men, we cannot merely approach God on our own. We need a mediator, a go-between, between us and God. And Moses, the great lawgiver, was a mediator between Israel and God, but he sinned and he failed. He did not get to enter in. I think uh, John mentioned that in the reading this morning. Samuel, the judge, was a mediator between Israel and God, but he sinned and failed in regards to his sons. Aaron, the high priest, a mediator between God, he had the greatest job in the world. 
He got to go in behind the veil of the temple, not without blood, and there he could stand and offer blood for the people of Israel. And the glory of God was right before him, and he sinned and he failed, and God struck him down up on the mountaintop. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Elijah, Elisha, all the prophets of God, raised by God and filled with God's Spirit, mediated between Israel and God, but all of them sinned and failed. We need a Savior greater than all men, one who can mediate between us and God, one without sin or failure. In 1 Timothy 2.5, the Bible says that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us. He's greater than all men because he is truly man and truly God. Listen, brothers and sisters, Friends who are here, man desperately needs a Savior. You can see in all the culture around us, in the movies, the TV shows, there's an underlying theme. Man is looking for someone to rescue him. But mankind are all looking for a Savior in every place and in all the wrong places. It is to God and God alone that we look for a Savior. And because God brought us the Savior greater than every man, we must believe in Christ alone for forgiveness and freedom from the law's demands. He is a Savior greater than men. And secondly, He is also the Savior rejected by men. Notice this in verses 26 to 29. Jesus is the Savior rejected by the Jews. In verse 27, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem did not understand the utterances of the prophets, their own scriptures. A little time out. Uh, my dad uh, sent me a Jerusalem, stu- a Jewish study Bible. And I thought, oh, that'll be cool. It's written by Christians on a perspective of the Old Testament. It wasn't. It was really cool. It was written by current rabbis and Jews. And it's just the Old Testament. And it gives all their, like, like you know, an ESV study Bible, all the notes below it. It was the same thing written by rabbis. And you read through some of the great texts on Christ, like Isaiah 53, and they completely miss it. They still think this way. They're still in Judaism. They're still trusting in a Messiah who is to them yet to come. But these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem back then did not understand the utterances of the prophets, their own scriptures, as they were read week by week. And even though they faithfully read the law, the prophets, and the writings, they did not understand them. The people outside in the outlying areas all looked back to Jerusalem and said, that's the headquarters of where our faith is. That's where the temple is. So anybody would think that the Jewish the Jews in Jerusalem would have it all figured out. No, they missed the boat entirely. Being proud, their eyes were blinded to seeing who Jesus truly is. In verse 27, we see the Jewish leaders did not know or understand Jesus himself. Although Peter says in Acts 2 and verse 22 that God displayed him as his approved man, with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him, they did not recognize or understand who he is. And you know, I have to admit, that just kind of shocked me when I read that. Perhaps Paul was being gracious. But even in other places, Paul and Peter say the same thing. But you look back to the Gospels and what do you see? 
He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He cleansed lepers. He healed a paralytic after he forgave his sins. He raised the dead. He walked on stormy seas. And he calmed those seas with a few words. He took one little boy's small lunch and fed thousands with it. His life, his ministry, his miracles all display him undeniably to be the Messiah. And yet the Jewish leaders failed to recognize or understand them. And I would argue that the possibility is pride blinded them from seeing who Jesus truly is. And I would argue that often we're no different. Pride blinds us from seeing who God truly is and what God is truly doing and saying. His life, his ministry, his miracles all display him to be the Messiah. And in verse 28, the Jewish leaders found in him no guilt worthy of death. His life and conduct were without sin. In John 8, 46, Jesus turns to the crowd and says, Which one of you convicts me of sin? And you could hear the silence just kind of rippling through the crowd because nobody, there's not a thing they could say. If, if I was to ask that question, there'd be a flood of answers in seconds and you'd miss half of them. But Jesus asked that question and no one could answer in Mark 14 and verse 15, 56, sorry, they're trying to raise up witnesses at his trial to accuse him. And the Bible says that the false witnesses at his trial could not even agree with each other. The Jews kept trying to find grounds to accuse him, but they couldn't because he had no sin and no failure in him. And finally, they resorted to paying Judas, a false disciple, to betray him for the price of a common slave. They don't understand him. They can't find grounds to execute him, and yet they rejected him and handed him over. In verse 28, the Bible says the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to execute Jesus. But Luke 23 and verse 4, Pilate says he could find no fault in him. So even the, the Gentile governors couldn't find any reason to put him to death. Yet, to appease the angry mob, he gave in and delivered Jesus to be scourged and mocked and crucified. And Jesus is our Savior, rejected and crucified by wicked and ungodly men. In verse 28, they carried out, the Bible says, all that was written about him. Notice in verse 32 that Christ is the Savior promised by God. One of the great themes of this whole sermon that Paul preaches is promise and fulfillment. How he is promised by God. And even the manner of his death was promised in great detail. To give you a sample, in Isaiah 50 and verse 6, he was promised his scourging. In Psalm 22 and verses 7 and 8, they promised the crowds would mock him. In Psalm 22 and verse 16, promises that his hands and feet would be nailed to a cross. A psalm written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. God promised one day the Savior would come and they'll nail his hands to a cross. I wonder how David understood those words as he wrote them. In Isaiah 53 and verse 12, the Bible tells us that he promised, the Bible tells us his death would be between two thieves. And in verse 7, they promised his suffering in silence. And there's so many more promises related to his death. 
The Jews, reading but not understanding their own prophets, rejected Jesus, the Savior brought by God according to promise. They saw, but they didn't understand His miracles, His wonders, He sought, and they rejected Him. The Jews, without any grounds for execution, rejected Him and asked for His crucifixion by the Romans. And all of it was promised by God. See, the wonderful truth is that all of man's working, all of man's machinations cannot foil, upset, or throw off the purposes of God. God always accomplishes His purposes. Israel rejected Jesus in ignorance and some misunderstanding, but God in grace raised Christ from the dead. And God in grace presents Him to Jew and Gentile alike, here in Acts 13 and all through the book of Acts, to be received by faith for the forgiveness of sins and for the restoration of all that God designed and created us to be. God in grace continues steadfastly to hold up, to exalt Christ through the preaching of the gospel so that those who presently reject Him may even yet, as God opens their eyes, repent of their rejection and receive Christ as the Savior whom God brought forth. Christ is the Savior we all desperately need. And you know, there's a beautiful parallel here. Just as Israel had rejected God as king over them and asked for Saul, a human king, so also the Jerusalem Jewish leaders rejected Christ as their king. And just as God raised up David to be their king after Saul, so also God raised up Jesus from death to be the king of kings and lord of lords, to be exalted to the highest throne of heaven, to be given authority over heaven and earth, to be exalted as Savior and Lord over all. Nothing can frustrate God's purposes and plans. Notice thirdly, Our Savior is raised and exalted by God in fulfillment of His promises. There's so much said about promise. I thought I'd just make that the theme of the sermon, but I thought, nah, it doesn't quite capture everything, so I kind of put it aside. But, you know, Paul is so careful in presenting his sermon, his case before the Jews, and some of the things he's presenting are absolutely radical for them. To suggest that the Jerusalem Jews didn't understand was radical for them. To suggest that Jesus... A carpenter born in Nazareth under questionable circumstances was absolutely radical. And so Paul continually bases and roots his arguments in Scripture. He was raised as God promised. God promised them a Savior. In verse 23, the Bible... Sorry, try again. In verse 23, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. And in verse 32, Paul says, We preach the gospel of the promise made to the fathers. God promised the Old Testament fathers that the Savior would come. In Genesis 3.15, God promised the Savior as the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18, to Israel, God promised the Savior as a prophet to speak to them all that God commanded. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, God promised through Hannah to anoint and exalt his king. Do you know that right back in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 is the very first mention of a Messiah using that term in the Old Testament, right back then, before the kings were even uh, on the throne in Israel. 
In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14, to David, God promised a dynasty and kings to sit on his throne, on God's throne forever. And now here, in verses 32 to 34, God fulfilled his promises made to the fathers to raise Christ from the dead. You know, in all my studies, I looked at these last few verses. I kind of overlooked them till about lunchtime yesterday, thinking, well, they're talking about the resurrection. I can just quickly cover those. And then I discovered, to a lot of studying and reading and rethinking, that those verses have a lot more to say than just to describe Jesus' resurrection. Notice in verse 33, Paul quotes Psalm 2 and verse 7, which says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, certainly, Christians of all ages recognize that this verse refers in a very broad sense to God's bringing forth of His Son as truly man and truly God to redeem sinful humanity, of which we're all a part. But there's more than that captured in those verses. Paul speaks in Romans 1, verses 1 to 4. And if you read that passage... Uh, Roman 1 verses 1 to 4, you see that the similarity between what he says here in length, he condenses it down in Romans 1, 1 to 4 and says almost the same thing. He says, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Close quote. In other words, Jesus' resurrection was God's mighty declaration to all the world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is His Son. When New Testament writers cite and quote an Old Testament text, it's kind of understood that they usually mean the whole of that Old Testament text in its context. So it's kind of like a little abbreviated pointer to the listener to go back and think about everything else that that text says around it. So remembering this, that Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm, it describes Christ's enthronement, and in the following verses, His universal rule over all the nations, and His warning to those nations that they better serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and submit to the Son, lest He be angry with them. So Paul's quoting Psalm 2 and verse 7 is about far more than Christ simply being raised. It's about Christ being raised and ascended to rule and reign on high over all the nations of the earth. Don't ever get the idea like I did for years that Jesus' resurrection was his simply coming back to life. Now, he's back the way he was before. Easily, in our minds, we subconsciously equate Jairus' daughter being raised and Lazarus coming out of the tomb and maybe one of those ones that Elisha and Elijah raised as with Jesus' resurrection. It's all on the same level. That's not. Jesus' resurrection is on an infinitely greater level. What happened to Lazarus later in his life? He died. (laughs) He went back in the grave again. Here we are again. Wrap him up with a cloth, put him back where you had him. Jairus' daughter died again. All of them died again. But Jesus did not die again. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is his exaltation to the highest point. And Paul's quoting Psalm 2 verse 7 is about four more than him simply being raised. It's about him being raised 
to ascend on high, to rule and reign on high over all the nations of the earth. Uh, in some time around now, our new King Charles will make an enthronement speech. Well, Jesus did the same thing. Between His resurrection and His ascension, Jesus gathered all His disciples together on top of the mountain and He gave them this enthronement speech. He said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to Me. You know the problem with us is we read those verses like... And we just kind of, they go over our minds and over our mouths and we just kind of blitz our way through them and we stop let the impact of what has just been said sink in. All authority... Nobody in all of the earth has higher authority than Christ to this day and through eternity. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, he says, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them, and so on. Jesus, as King of kings, commissioned them and us and all subsequent believers to go and bring the nations into submission to Him as His obedient, faith-filled disciples. Jesus' resurrection was not merely restoring His physical life. Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of His exaltation to reign as Messiah and King and God over all the nations. And as He spoke those words in the synagogue... The Jews would understand there's infinitely more than just coming back to life in what Paul is saying. But you know what? There's more. Notice secondly, in verse 34, Paul quotes Isaiah 55 and verse 3. And he says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. How do we understand this? It takes a bit of background information. For one thing, just to quickly time out, if you read your Bible and you open up Isaiah 55 and verse 3 and you read it like I did, you're going to go, what? That's not the same verse. Nelson must have got the reference wrong. No, I checked about five commentaries. It is the right verse. It's just that when Paul writes this or Luke writes this, he's quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and our Old Testament is translated from the original Hebrew. And there is some difference. Here's the cool thing. Paul is writing, or Paul speaking, Luke's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so he inspired him to translate it exactly as you see it in your Bible. So it's okay that they don't line up. He is referring to the same verse. And if you unpack them both, you'll see that they actually work. It's complicated, but it does work. Paul quotes Isaiah 55 and verse 3 in the Septuagint. He says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. How do we understand this? God established with David an everlasting covenant. Like it says in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, God says to David through Nathan the prophet that he, Solomon, shall build a house for my name and God will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Everlasting. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, uh, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In those couple of verses, he mentions forever three times. In 2 Samuel 23, in David's last song, he says, For does not my house or my dynasty stand so with God? For God has made with me an everlasting covenant. 
For those of you who don't know what a covenant means, covenant is just a binding agreement written in blood. It cannot be broken. And God has made this everlasting binding agreement with David, ordered in all things and secure. The prophet Isaiah, all the way through the book of of Isaiah, states implicitly and repeatedly that God has continued His everlasting covenant with David, whose royal descendants finish with who? Who is David's last royal descendant? Take a wild guess. Someone said Jesus. You're absolutely right. It is. It finishes with him. Jesus is the Messiah. And since Jesus is the Messiah, as Scripture clearly shows, death has no power over him. And so Paul says here in verse 30 that God raised him from the dead. And in verse 34, God raised him from the dead no more to return to decay or corruption. Here's the cool thing. Okay, we're getting there. This is a little bit of a way to get there. Christ has a glorified, incorruptible body, and he lives forever. Alongside of that, Paul quotes Isaiah 55 and verse 3, saying that God will give Jesus the holy and sure blessings of David. In other words, the holy and sure blessings of the everlasting covenant that God made with David are given to Christ. It's kind of like uh, inheritance, right? Uh, Your father has um, a Ferrari, right? It's a Ferrari 320 GTI. I don't know know Ferrari models. Don't come up and correct me later. It's one of the best. It's worth millions, and you've had your eye on that Ferrari for the longest time. And one day you discover that the father's died, that the, the Ferrari, which is part of that estate, you think, oh, I'm going to lose it. It's part of the estate. No, no, no. Your father has bequeathed that Ferrari to you. The moment you die, the moment he dies, you get it. Then you discover, in order to get it, there's a clause in the will that says, Nelson has to, uh, let's think of something difficult. Oh, I know. Nelson's got to lose 40 kilos. Then he can have the Ferrari, right? Because I don't know if you know, but Ferraris are built for small, thin, slender guys like Edward, not guys like me. I'm a full gospel preacher, not a skinny one. So the moment I accomplish that 40-kilogram loss, that which is mine by right, I inherit, I get it. So Jesus, who is the last royal descendant of David... He has by rights all of the holy and sure blessings that are wrapped up in David's everlasting covenant with God. They're his. So as he comes out of the grave, he's raised again to life. It becomes his in that moment because he has now accomplished all that God has given him to do. He is the rightful heir to those holy and sure blessings. Christ, in a sense, inherited them at his resurrection. They belong to David's holy descendant. Look right below the line that says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Right below that, what's it say? Therefore, he says also another psalm, you will not let your what? Holy one see corruption. Why did he say that? He was making the connection for the Jews that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Jesus is the Messiah. It is His by His right of who He is. 
And so Jesus Christ, God's Holy One, has been given all the blessings of that everlasting covenant that God made with David when God raised him from the dead. But you know what? That's not all. Christ now passes on those holy and sure blessings to all he has cleansed from sin and sanctified, to all who have been forgiven and freed from the law's demands. If we are holy like Jesus is, we get to share in that inheritance, that blessing. He said, that's a problem because I'm a sinner. You're right, that is a problem. You are a sinner. We're all sinners. So how in the world are we going to inherit that blessing? Is Christ makes us clean. If Christ takes the value of His shed blood and His death and washes us clean, we now, alongside of Him in Christ, get to inherit those tremendous blessings of Christ. I know some of you are probably wondering, what are the blessings? It's kind of like, what's the Ferrari look like, right? I mean, you're wondering, what's, what does it look like? What are those blessings? What are you talking about? I went from one commentary to the next, and almost none of them gave any real explanation. Finally found one that gave something, and I opened the door to understand what all that meant. The name John Gill may not mean anything to most of you, but John Gill was a Baptist pastor who preached, if my memory serves correctly, in Spurgeon's church about 100 years before Spurgeon was there. Not 100, maybe more like 60 years before Spurgeon was there. Okay, that's who John Gill is. He said it's like this. Those holy and sure blessings of the everlasting covenant with David are redemption, forgiveness of sins, regeneration, it's salvation and eternal life. It's for God to be our God and we to be His people. It is for us who were once not a people, now to be the people of God. It's as Isaiah 55 describes, to know absolute satisfaction for our souls. Take your Bible, just stick your finger in there for a minute, and we'll go over to Isaiah 55. I want you to read this and see it. Listen to what he said. This is a beautiful gospel passage when you read it. And, and God is speaking. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant. Sorry, make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. What's he talking about? The gospel. Come and hear, come and drink, come and find satisfaction for your souls in Christ. And when you come and in faith you believe and you take it for yourself, God says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And then he has a comma, my steadfast, sure love for David. Remember way back at the beginning of the sermon, about two hours ago, we talked about David and David sinned. Right? And we have the greatness about David's being restored by God because God is a God of grace. And even though David sinned, David, God looked back at David and still loved David because he had a heart for God. He loved David because David confessed his sin and sought forgiveness and was restored. And so when we are restored, 
washed clean by Christ's blood, it's like God turns to us with the love he has for David and looks at you and me. And we experience love like no other. How deep the Father's love. We were just singing that, weren't we? You don't know love until you see the cross. Because the cross is where all of this is purchased. And the cross is not complete without the resurrection. If Jesus died on a cross, went into the grave, and was still there, we would be absolutely hopeless, with no basis for any hope whatsoever. But Christ died. And when he came up out of the grave, it was God's shout to all of creation, This is my Son. Exalted to the highest place, this is the one. You believe in him and there's forgiveness of sins. You believe in him, there's redemption, there's salvation, there's eternal life. There's a covenant relationship for you with God. It's satisfaction for our souls. It's to have a new heart and a new spirit placed within. It's to have the law of God written on our hearts. It's to be restored and elevated to all that God designed us to be as humans created in His image. God raised our Savior from death, declaring Him to be the Son of God, exalting Him to the highest place and throne, and bestowing on Him all authority over all creation, blessing Him with all those holy and sure blessings which He then passes on to us. That's a salvation. That's a salvation unlike anything else you could possibly imagine. You see, in our world, salvation gets to go to the deserving, right? But in God's economy, salvation goes to the undeserving because we're all undeserving. We all need a Savior. And so Paul concludes his sermon in Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, the Jews, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, And by him, everyone, there's no mistake in Paul's terms. He has referred to Jew and Gentile all the way through his address. And now he just says, brothers and everyone. Everybody's included in this. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The requirement for all those blessings to come to us, absolute freedom from sin, And sin's defilement, absolute freedom from any and every charge that could be brought by the law against us. It all comes through Christ. Jesus Christ is the Savior we all need. He shed His blood that we might be washed in that blood, that our conscience might be forever cleansed. Don't you love, hate your conscience? You can nod either way. I love my conscience. It tells me when I do wrong and I hate my conscience because it's always speaking up about what I've done wrong, right? But a conscience washed in Christ's blood falls silent. There's no longer anything left to say. He died to answer and meet all the demands of the law against us. Imagine standing in a courtroom of God And somebody has a great scroll of the book of the law. And they call Nelson to the stand and he's going to be charged by the law. 
and the scribe begins to run his hand down all the laws of God to try and find something. He stops, looks at me, shakes his head, keeps rolling. No, 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 no. And keeps turning and working his way down. And finally he closes the book and he says, no charge against him will stand because Christ has wiped them all out. I began by saying we all need to be saved. Christ bled and died and was raised to save us, to save us from God's wrath, to make us who are spiritually dead alive in Christ, to remove hostility and reconcile us to fellowship with God, to remove the stain and the scars of sin that we might truly glorify and worship God as His living statues to enable us to enjoy fellowship and marriage and family the way God designed. You want to have a great marriage? I want to have a better marriage. I got a great marriage. I want a better one. You know how we have it? When that marriage is bathed in the blood of Christ. When mom and dad, husband and wife are living in submission to Christ as Savior and King, our marriages get so much better. You want to have a good family with kids? My kids are grown. All I can do now is look back and regret at some of the things that in a moment I should, have, should not have said or should have said. We want to have a great family and mom and dad soaked in the blood of Christ, living and continuing in the grace that we have received is a great marriage. To remove Christ died and sorry, Christ bled and died and was raised to remove the stains and scars of sin that we might truly glorify and worship God as his living statues. He died to enable us to enjoy marriage and friendship and family. He shed his blood, was died and, and raised again to reconcile and create in himself one new man, Jew and Gentile, reconciled to God and to each other. What we're going to see next, the next passages? The Jews hated him for what he was saying. He was welcoming the Gentiles in as they were, and they couldn't comprehend that. But the wonderful truth is, Jew and Gentile reconciled to God and to each other. So how do we respond? What do we do with this message? The words of Isaiah 55, come and believe. My friend Con, who's not here today, often looks at me and says, but do you believe this? He's not being nasty. He's quoting Jesus' words to Mary or Martha in that scene where he's going to the tomb. Do you believe this? Not just here. This is easy. Nothing I'm saying is philosophically or theologically difficult. It's easy to understand it here. There's so much more to get it here. Because this takes a work of God in our hearts to open the heart to understand and to believe, to respond in faith. Do you believe it? The message of Isaiah is come. Like we did at the beginning of the service. Come and worship. Come everyone who thirsts. My friend sitting here this morning, is there a thirst deep in your soul for God? He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, doesn't matter, come and buy 
and eat. Come and buy wine, which cheers the soul, milk, which strengthens the body, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That's the world outside of us. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food and so on. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. That's the message. God has brought a Savior. A Savior unlike anything else the world can come up with. God has blessed us. The holy and sure blessings of David's everlasting covenant are ours to enjoy for eternity if we would come and believe and be saved. Simple as that. I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to pray and then we're going to sing uh, the last song we have for this morning. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Would you stand, we'll pray, and then we'll sing. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just stand here this morning in utter amazement. There is no God like You. There is no Savior like the Lord Jesus. Father, forgive us for so often trying to satisfy, trying to fill ourselves with things that cannot satisfy, only leave us empty. Father, we give thanks. We praise you, O God, for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, greater than any and every king, greater than any human ever. A man rejected by his own, forsaken by his friends, and for a time forsaken by you, that we might be forgiven, that we might be cleansed and set free, that we might know all those holy and sure blessings. Father, we just stand back in amazement and we give thanks. We praise you, O God, from the bottom of our hearts for such a salvation that we have in Christ. O God, let us not ever forget it. Father, draw us again and again and again to the foot of the cross to see Love and grace and mercy poured out, justice and righteousness and holiness displayed. Father, we give thanks. We praise you, O God, for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, for those standing here this morning that do not know Jesus as their Savior, Father, we pray, we pray, we cry out to you, O God, that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of their understanding, open their hearts and minds to hear to respond, and to live. Father, we ask you all these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.